0: Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to a hundred dollars. Just visit PrizePicks dot com slash play one hundred and use code play one hundred. That's code play one hundred at PrizePicks dot com slash play one hundred for a first deposit match up to a hundred dollars. Prize Picks daily fantasy sports made easy. You
1: and Sam started making Death of a Gentleman. Certainly, judging by what I've heard you talk about in the editing process and what we saw on screen, it started out as a very different film than it ended up being. Can you talk through that, that process of how it went from what seemed like quite a personal story of you two and particularly Ed Cowan to really a, an expose of cricket governance?
2: Yeah, I, we we had been making stuff for Crick Info for a little while and it was, it was a lot of fun, but it was very limiting. And I think Sam particularly, you know, Sam's obviously gone on to make other documentaries since then. He really wanted to make the, the sort of longer format ideas and he's probably found his niche in that. And he sort of said, you know, I want to make a documentary. What should it be about? And I said, but there's only really two topics. Uh, one is match fixing and the other one is, you know, the future of test cricket and, and how it is governed. And we decided that we would go through that at the time not really realizing that the two would kind of collide, I suppose, with the way that the stories went. But yeah, if you look at some of the early interviews, you know, someone like Kerry Packer, and uh, I suppose we had Harsha Bogle, even Ravi Shastri, it was a bit more lighthearted and, and, and fun. And it, can, can you explain how Test Cricket is run? And th- there's a, I don't even think it made the movie, but there's a great moment where Mar- I said to Mark Taylor, you're on the New South Wales board, Cricket Australia board, ICC board and maybe MCC board. I said, is it possible you're running cricket? And he goes, (laughs) scary. And he goes, scary, isn't it? And it was that kind of vibe that we had. And, and it wasn't really until we got to the administrators that everything switched. That was the minute we got to the administrators. So the first one we had was Haroon Logah. And it was just, there was no fun vibe anymore. The minute we went away from talking heads and experts, uh, like even Gideon Haig, we've got him like at his cricket ground, like in a t-shirt, just, walking around right like it was such a different feel but the minute they, the cricket administrators got on board they were so cagey and defensive and everything else we were like well wait a minute what actually is happening there and i i'm trying to remember i think we saw haroon Lawgat at the end of that australian series or maybe maybe it, one test in one test to go sir i think it was in perth and adelaide was the last test so that. for those
1: of you who haven't seen the film this is india's ill fated yeah, tour to australia in 2014 no or was it 2011 the f- 2011 20-
2: the 4-0 yeah 2011 12 so it was 2011 12 yeah and uh so yeah so we are we we have an interview with him and it was really weird because he had a minder there a press minder right uh, someone who became very important part of well he's icc cricket he went to work with the ECB after that um you know Colin Gibson you can google him if you want he's got a Funny history. If you look at uh, what happened when he was involved with um, uh, English football coaches <laughs> for a time, um, and he was in the room, and it was like suddenly we'd gone from you know sitting on the ground with Gideon Haig and making jokes with um, Kerry O'Keefe and Harsha Bogle to the, this other side that no one had really ever been to before, and and they changed the narrative. Right? It wasn't really us. It was it was it was such a bizarre a moment when me and Sam suddenly realised that we had this huge argument. We filmed it. It didn't make the film just because it was so long. But me and Sam were like, what is this now? And like, we were both arguing about stuff that we were learning about in real time, which is part of the reason that the natural progression of us in the film is in the film so much because these things were actually happening. And so Haroon... I think after we turned the cameras off, suddenly he started giving us really interesting information, and from that point forward, lots of people started stepping forward and giving us information. Obviously, we had James Sutherland; that was another, you know, uh, interesting uh, interview at the time. Um, not long after that, we had Giles Clark, and I would say a few months after that, we got N. Varson. I think that I think that was the order. But, but Haroon sort of set it off. But by the time we got to Giles and then to Srini, it had just changed, right? Like it was suddenly like, wait a minute, they aren't even answering these questions correctly. And we were finding out more and more. And the other thing that we found out, which was, I think coming in, I would have been thought of as one of the world's experts in who ran cricket and who, you know, how the game was going and everything else. And, and Gideon would have been you know, number two and Harsha probably would have been in the top five. We realized that we hadn't even scratched the surface of actually what was happening. And that's because no one had really covered cricket because it had been off in a, in a Dubai hotel suite, if we're being honest. I mean, that's essentially where it was being run. There was no cricket journalist in Dubai in those days to tell Usman Semi did move there for a little while. Um, you know, Paul Radley's there as, uh, these days. But that's not where the cricket media are, right? And so Cricket Australia stuff and English stuff and South African stuff, all the... Indian stuff, all these p- people have people around to uncover things but the ICC was kind of on its own and we kind of stumbled into that world and it changed what the film was. I think I had no idea that cricket wasn't r- run very well I don't think Sam knew as much going in I think after that we realised, oh hell, there's um, everything's going on here
1: What emerges from that and what emerges from you mentioned Sonia then who's the cricket Info journalist who broke both that Funding model, the the big three as it became and the most recent one, uh, which is kind of that vision taken to its logical conclusion, is that cricket, in a sense, isn't being run by anyone. It, there isn't a governing body. There isn't actually any governance per se. It's um, how to how to put this not that we have a legal department but uh, how to put this it is being presided over and that's quite a polite way of of putting it it is it is a club rather than a governing body
2: yeah and it's he's it, it, a really good example of what happened when Colin Graves wanted to take over the ECB right he was only interested in English cricket at that point that was his big thing obviously you know uh, Yorkshire fan. He had loaned money to Yorkshire. He was going to take over the ECB role. He had to get rid of Giles Clark. The way they got rid of Giles Clark was essentially they said, oh, you can keep going to the ICC meetings. You can keep doing that. And uh, we'll, we'll take over the real stuff. That's kind of how a lot of people think about it until they get in. The minute Colin Graves got in, he realized, well, I can't make any decisions until I'm in the, in, I'm in the big boy meetings. And suddenly everything changes and uh i'm trying to think of who it was I f- i'll forget the name but it was one of the australian chairman uh was saying you know this off the record sort of stuff that you hear but it- he didn't realize how political it was and how big it was and you know we we had a meeting with malcolm speed it was a brilliant meeting really it wasn't long after we talked to Harun lorgan i think and it was this incredible meeting with, with malcolm speed where we suddenly and-, and malcolm speed was like this is like top-level global politics, because there's so many countries involved. You know, P- Peter Chingoka was the, one of the most powerful people in cricket, despite the fact he ran Zimbabwe in cricket. And no one knew who he was in cricket. There was no info. you know, running profiles on him, right? They, you know, the top, top Indian newspapers and New Zealand newspapers weren't running stories about Peter P- Chingoka, but because Zimbabwe had a vote, and it was quite often a swing vote, and he was so smart. He was this incredibly powerful person. And so you had, for a time, Zimbabwe had all this power. Then you had the Western bloc and the Eastern bloc. Then you had the big three bloc. You know, all these different voting blocks kept coming up. The big three and the small seven and all these sorts of things came from it. So when you said no one's presiding over it and it's a club, it's not even that it's a club where it was always being run particularly well. England weren't always particularly that interested in, in the ICC affairs, as I, as I just pointed out. So you have this situation where there is an ICC organization which is usually filled with very hardworking professional people who understand a lot about cricket. Then you have a 75-year-old who's probably retired, who probably ran his local cricket league, then maybe his state cricket league or county cricket league, and then ended up at the national team, uh, likes to fly first class, has a lot of very, very strong opinions about cricket, but probably doesn't know that much about the day-to-day running of the game. And they clash in with CEOs from different boards and and the people who are running the ICC who are essentially administrators with almost no power, except that when we think about cricket, we're the ones, they're the ones we think are running it and they're not.
1: Or as has become particularly evident in Indian cricket since Death of a Gentleman came out in 2015. India's not wholly uh, the only country that does this, Pakistan and Sri Lanka, or they ran a state they yes. ran. Yeah. They were the or a country. <laughs> yes, oh, well, a state in, in the in the local and the national sense, or yeah. they were a government minister.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, Chingoka is a perfect example of that. I think De- I think Delbia might have had political influence back in the nineties, so it's it's not
1: completely new. In fact, but he wasn't he wasn't a political office holder in wasn't. the same way that in no. the same way. So the the two great villains, as it were, who come out of Death of a Gentleman. And it's interesting the roles they played is very is Shrinivasan as this sort of very shadowy figure, <laughs> um, giving evasive non-answers, and Giles Clark almost as his public bad cop, um, the sort of it reminds me of the role you know you might give to a deputy headmaster. You know he's the mm. one in charge of of a, a, an aggressive defence. Uh, as it were. Since then, we've now had, we've had actually gone through Anurag Thakur, who was also, uh, um, actually was had to leave the BCCI under a scandal and then ended up as the sports minister. A uh, great story about uh, Anurag Takur is that when he was trying to become chair of his state cricket board, there was a rule at the time that you had to play first class cricket. So he got himself appointed selector and picked himself for a match.
2: Yeah. and bowled very well in the first innings, to be fair to him, and got absolutely smashed in the second innings. It was my favourite story. He, uh, he he got through an innings, and he could have just said, I did all right there. Let's just leave it there. And he's like, no, I'm a spinner. I'm going to bowl in the second innings. It didn't go as well. Um, Yeah, look, I mean, he was political. Obviously, you go on to Jay J- Shah. I should say, we, we do talk about political stuff very much from a uh, subcontinent point of view. Cricket Australia won a John Howard to be involved with the ICC, and John Howard was very close to being that, you know, former Australian Prime Minister. So, and, a big and if I remember fan,
1: right, he didn't get that job because of some of the things he'd said while Australian Prime Minister that had annoyed the Asian uh, countries.
2: Yeah, he he called Muralia Chaka regularly. I think was one of the, the big ones. Uh, so, so you, it's not just the Asian Asian side of it, but even uh, you talk about Srinivasan and Giles Clark before. They are political people, even if they're not politicians. And I noticed that, you know, uh, with some of the Australian appointees and some of the New Zealand appointees, these were smart people. they had been good in business. They weren't idiots or anything, but they were politically naive to the situations they were going into. So if you look at Giles Clark, Giles Clark always saw the world going towards India and Pakistan, right? He taught himself Urdu because he thought one day it's going to come in handy. And he was right. You know, it was a good way of getting good graces uh, with with the people that he had to deal with. And so that level is very different than some old retired business tycoon who likes a bit of cricket, who maybe ran a decent organization, has a bit of time on their hand, and now they've got the job and they've turned up to the ICC on day one. And there's Peter Jinkoker in one ear. There's Giles Clark in another ear. There's very smart people in the room, lawyers and... And everyone else, and they all know all these things that this former, you know, business person has no idea about. It's it's a remarkably weird situation. And the other thing is that I think the BCCI is generally seen as this big baddie, this behemoth, right? In my in my dealings with the BCCI, I would say that there's not one, there's not if if there's 300 people that are important at the BCCI at any one time, there's about five people in any one block. Right. they they're so split over political uh, differences, local differences, um sometimes cricket differences. There are globalists within um Indian cricket and we've seen them actually end up at the ICC and then we've seen really hyper local people who don't give any craps about international cricket, right? They only care about you know India doing really well. Then there's the the um uh IPL zealots, right? There's just all these little cracks and and everything else. And what happens at the BCCI is also what happens at the ICC. You, sometimes you get a, ch- a chairman of a, of a cricket board who's completely full on about one thing and their own CEO is not in lockstep with them. So the CEO's meetings are way different than the chair uh, meetings. And the whole thing just sort of goes back to what you were saying before, of no one really being in charge. And so what happens is the person with the most power at that one time, whoever that may be, and it's it's it does vary quite wildly is the person who gets to make a bunch of decisions in, in the short term. And then generally what happens is they're on the outer and we go to the next person.
1: This is a very um, Soviet picture that we're, that we're painting of, <laughs> uh, of international cricket governance. And one of the things that, that struck me and one of the things I've thought about more deeply since is that whereas for all of FIFA and the IOC and UEFA's mm. problems, the people in charge of or occupying those high offices on, who are on the committees, they get richer and more powerful by growing the game. Mm. That I don't think has ever been the case with 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 global cricket. And we have seen the, certainly at the international level, we have seen an entrenchment and a... Pulling up at the drawbridge, and I think COVID has only made that worse. Actually, this uh, the the acceleration of this protectionist thinking mm. over over COVID, and this fear based decision making has uh, has taken cricket further away in many ways from being a being a global expansion expansionist sport than. Even at the depths of the, of, of the big three, the, the transition between. So, not very long after Death of a Gentleman came out, Srinivasan, who there's a line in the film, he would be on every committee that tried to sack him, eventually lost power. Hmm. There then is a change of leadership at the PCCI, change of leadership at the ICC. And for a while, and Ireland and Afghanistan are admitted as full members. Mm. There's more money being put into the Associates. The World Cup Cricket Qualifier becomes more of a thing. Uh, The ODI Super League gets announced. And then suddenly COVID takes all of the money out of the national boards and suddenly the only people with any money left are private leagues. Mm. The the situation as painted by even people who would be very bullish about cricket's future now, there seems to be much more resignation now that international cricket as we know it is not going to survive than there was in the period that you guys are making the film.
2: Yeah, when we were making the film, there was a lot of people laughing at us I remember Mike Atherton wrote a piece, and in the piece he said, oh, there's these two guys making this film about the death of Test Cricket, but last week there was a great Test match on, and so Test Cricket isn't dying. I was like, Atherton, what are you talking about? If it was just good games that we were waiting for, that wouldn't be the problem. The problem is that the financial model of Test Cricket doesn't make any sense. The bilateral model of Test Cricket doesn't make any sense. There's no marketing for Test Cricket, and there's no one in charge of Test Cricket, because the ICC don't run Test Cricket. I think between Srinivasan and Giles Clark leaving, Cricket Australia having new leadership as well, that that period from 2016 to 2020, let's say, as you said, up until COVID, they they had a chance of coming up with a new model that allowed for the ICC to actually run cricket. What they could have done is they could have said, the ODI Super League is a perfect example of this. The ODI Super League, we had the World Test Championship, uh, and we could have moved test cricket towards the Olympics and then just had World Cups or you know, or whatever, whatever they wanted. If they had done that, it would have meant that when you pay, played a test match and you were Zimbabwe, you didn't actually have to pay all the hosting fees and everything else. They would have come out of a global pot. All the players would have been paid out of a global pot. There would have been all these different things. That doesn't mean the Indian players and the English players and the Australians wouldn't have got paid more because the marketing rights alone... In their contracts would still be high, but it did. It would have meant that players around the world would have been looking at you know between two hundred thousand and maybe eight hundred thousand dollars a year to play test
1: cricket. They're able to and make so, a more free and equal choice between international cricket yeah. and a private league.
2: But it wasn't the big teams that fought that; it was the small teams. Because one of the things that they needed to do in order to be able to make that work was going to be. Um, the smaller teams giving away a little bit of their power, but also having two divisions, especially in test cricket. You couldn't, you couldn't do a proper World Test Championship with nine teams, as we've seen <laughs> consistently now. What you really needed to do at that point was have seven teams in Division One and seven teams in Division Two. Then the ICC had to run it. Well, no one wanted to give the ICC that power. So already it was very limited. And then the second thing that they did was, is the smaller teams went, well, wait a minute. We don't want to be in Division 2 because that will mean that we'll be irrelevant. They are already irrelevant. They made that decision, what, four, five years ago, and they are already feeder teams, uh, well, f- feeder competitions, really, for the IPL, maybe for Major League Cricket, perhaps for whatever the Saudis do, whatever league gets popped up next week, right? They had their choice and a chance to actually go, do you know what? We've run it in a bilateral way and that doesn't work in the future model. This is what we can do. We can actually run it hand in hand with these uh, domestic competitions. What they've done, and, and I include the BCCI in this, they're getting closer and closer to the most important people being in cricket now are probably, well, I would say they're already the IPL owners, far more than the ICC or you know any of the um, individual cricket boards. And going forward, they'll get even more and more powerful. Right, And I'm not sure there's ever a way to pull that back. The last way to be able to do it was to keep international cricket as a relevant, thriving economy by making sure that the umpires, the grounds, the players, uh, the, the hosting fees, everything like that was paid for out of a big global pot. Right, And what you would have done is, and this was... To
1: be fair, which, Josh, which used to be the case. There used to be a test match fund... To top up things like, okay, this is before DRS, which makes everything a lot more expensive, but yes. there used to be a way of, let's say, Zimbabwe cricket, Zimbabwe, West Indies cricket, boards who've never had much money, even when they were really good, mm. they could apply to this fund or they could ask England or Australia, whoever was touring, to chip in a little bit. Instead, we now have the situation where New Zealand, who, were world, who are still the reigning World Test Champions up until next week, make the deliberate decision to only play four home test matches a year because they literally can't afford to otherwise.
2: Yeah. And, and also, the, the applying for it also means that everyone has to accept it, right? That's a political act. If you're Zimbabwe, and you no longer have any power at all. It's a political act to be able to get that money across. There was I don't think it was for the Test Match Fund, but there was a, a bunch of money that was given to Zimbabwean cricket that was not handled particularly well. No, I, I don't think the full details have ever come out, but I know there are a lot of people within cricket who were just like, safe, we gave them safe to once. say
1: the the early to mid-2000s were a turbulent time in Zimbabwe.
2: Very. This was later, though. I think this was like 2012, 2013. I can't remember. You'd have to have a look. It's a really interesting story of how I think the ICC had $5 million allocated to Zimbabwean cricket, and... Not everyone could see where that money had gone, um, is the best way of putting it. And as you said, it was a turbulent time in Zimbabwean cricket, let alone the country itself. And so there's still a political act. If you take all that away and you just say, okay, so when you host a World Cup, the fees are paid for from the overall package. That's the point, right? Tax-free. yeah right that is the po- one of the big selling points is you get the chance to host it and make yourself look good if you're an administrator you get to reignite your local cricket fan base you hopefully give your team a more of a chance of winning perhaps if you want you can upgrade your facilities um at some of those uh, events so i think it was the Wacker, for instance which had one of the worst press boxes in world cricket and suddenly there was a world cup and you're like oh this is not too bad no, unfortunately I, they didn't upgrade the rest of the ground so it fell apart, it the, fell apart. The, the,
1: the lord's media center Built for the ninety nine World Cup, yes. one well, now one of the best facilities in the world.
2: Yeah, and you see that again and again when you go around cricket. You can tell who's hosted a big game or or a bunch of games and got some money in. Um, and so that that is a way that they could have done it. And instead, they wanted that little bit of power. And by keeping that little bit of power, what have they really done? The game, hilariously, you said that they've 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 made it less global, but the game will become more global because it will be more, I mean, if, if USA and, and Saudi Arabia have leagues, it's going to be more global. We just saw an IPL final where at one end we had an Afghanistani bowler and the other end we had an Irish bowler. We've seen the Thai women and the Brazilian women's team come through. We've seen the fair break tournament. The, 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 the free market is making the game more global already. And so they were fighting over power and little bits of, of land that they were going to lose anyway, but they could have actually kept A nice little fiefdom for themselves, right? They could have given themselves a long legacy, which would have been, we saved international cricket, but there's still all this um, other stuff, but actually now they work hand in hand. Whereas as we're going, I think the IPL will expand. I think one of the other overseas leagues will probably take off to a fairly big amount. Who knows what will happen with with something like the Saudi um, situation. And so cricket will become more and more about the people who are rich enough to own IPL teams. And then there'll be small franchises, uh, leagues everywhere else
1: now this doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing this doesn't necessarily have to mean that cricket is no longer a worthwhile sport Mm -hmm. we there is a scenario where the shift that we saw in football in what are we talking now the early 20th maybe late 19th uh century um of domestic league football becoming the dominant maybe a bit later maybe a little bit later um becoming the dominant probably in the 50s where they started the european cup uh but of that becoming the major thing and then international cricket being uh being the thing that's on top of it being uh being something that is treated as a bit of a uh some countries take super seriously some countries think oh we've got a break to play this but then every few every couple of years oh this thing's on great uh that in theory as you say actually perversely actually makes for a more more global sport but it does mean that it very much limits what cricket can be else in outside of a very few countries who happen to have got in on the ground floor Mm. so that the i i have to say i was i was very much in the camp of not so much in the camp of there was a good test match last week therefore test cricket is not dying but it doesn't have to be this way because actually test cricket's been really really good on field for the last few years and actually if you sell this and tell people about it and make it easy to watch uh then people will really like it uh and Mm -hmm. there didn't seem to be anybody who actually had any power to do anything about it, who, yeah. who, who thought the same way.
2: Well, Ben Stokes will often say stuff like, oh, you know, there should be less um, cricket being played and everything. And I always wonder who he's talking to. Does, who does he think that message is supposed to go to? Now, it could be that Ben Stokes knows exactly what he's doing and it's, it's a veiled conversation to the ECB, but he also says it to the, about the international calendar as well. And the ECB has no real handle over that. And you hear players say this sort of, oh, something's got to be done about too much cricket. By whom? Like, where is this group who actually runs this? Because it's not the ICC. And as I said, most cricket, when we say there's too much cricket being played, generally what we mean is there's too much bilateral cricket being played, right? Which is what we grew up with. By England and India,
1: because everybody needs their money.
2: Yeah, but even, is it Sri Lanka have a, a, a... had a huge um, period of limited overs cricket coming up, or did they just have one? I can't remember when it was. There's a lot of, if if you were really investing on the CPL or the Lunker Premier League or any of these other things, you would actually play a lot more of that and a lot less internationals, but they're not giving up the internationals because there's still money there. So look, I I think your overall point is is right. I, I have said from the start that test cricket is undervalued. And I was told that by major TV executives in India specifically, but also in other countries, because it's five days, because it's it's regular, because it has this um, steady audience. But if it's not going to be run in a way that can cement its value, as we talked about before, uh, you know, of, of having a global streaming service where you can watch every test match. And it doesn't matter if you're in Switzerland. <laughs> hello and to, you're a hello,
1: hello to the 10 viewers of ICC TV out there. Yeah,
2: right and that's what the ICC TV is kind of trying to do but it's not it's not like you know I can go on and watch any NBA game I want at any stage because the NBA own that league and they could just sell me all the games and I can do my own team I can do a couple of games with my own team I can I can have a ridiculous package that allows me to go back and watch old games whatever I want I have that access to no one can do that in cricket even if you pay a fortune to your your you know your pay TV subscriber or your streaming subscriber or whatever however you do it it's very hard to go back and even watch the previous day's play, right? Or, or by very hard, I mean impossible. Like I don't think anywhere in the world that you can do stuff like that, right? We don't even, we don't even um, look after the fans who are already spending their money, let alone trying to find the other. So, I I think that what has happened is that with the with the uh, franchise nature of cricket. There is an opportunity for someone to come in and go, should we not just franchise Test cricket? Because I would I would suggest that Test cricket over a four year period is probably worth two billion dollars. Right? And by by,
1: by Test cricket we're talking about now if we're talking franchise, we're talking four or five day two innings cricket. Yes. Two innings aside cricket.
2: Yeah. And and when I say franchise, I also don't necessarily mean nation v nation, although that would be I think that would be the safest bet to do. But I could also see why you wouldn't do it that way and you would actually look at just, you know, having a team based in London and a team based in the north and two teams in India and two teams in Australia and a team in South Africa. Everybody out there who's
1: been doing mock test drafts for the last few years. Oh yeah, that'd
2: be loving it. Absolutely loving it. So so I think from that perspective, there's money to be made in that. But I don't think now the way that cricket is run and the way that cricket is governed, there's any way for them to actually make that $2 billion a year, to, to be able to make the money out of, out of the Ashes, to be able to make the money out of the Indian test matches, to be able to make the money out of the fact that West Indies game, no, not West Indies games, oh yeah, West Indies games actually rate quite well on English TV, right? Like little things like that, we don't make any money off. At the moment in cricket and the way that it's run and it's partly because uh, you know they sell the rights at the last minute they don't maximize the right structure and the money doesn't go back into the game so from that perspective i still think test cricket can make money and i still think that international cricket i think that probably now that the ODI Super League, there was just too many games. I mean, I thought if, if you'd had invented the ODI Super League 15 or 20 years ago, I would have been like, this is the single greatest invention of all time. This is great. You, know, This is going to help cricket so much. But in the end, you know, we saw uh, second rate Dutch teams playing a million games at home, getting a lot of experience and hopefully improving their cricket. But there was just too much cricket. And at the point where teams started canceling those series, I would assume that going ahead, that the when we talk about white ball cricket at an international level, unless teams are absolutely desperate for money, which is why they are playing them at the moment, I would assume that everything ends up as World Cups and maybe Champions Trophies and Olympics and Commonwealth Games and those sorts of things. And I don't think necessarily what we will see will be, um, was it, how many games are England, New Zealand playing at the end of this summer? Is it like eight? limited Directly after the World Cup. Yeah. So do you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of limited overs cricket that is being played still because those games still make money and they make well, more money well, than a lot well, of the well, T20 well, leagues. Uh, well. And
1: also because, I mean, for a, actually, you're right for a long, long time, people were my major argument against the fact that ODI cricket would be the first to go, which has been the argument. I uh, pretty much since T20 became mm. a real thing is that for a long time, one day internationals were the most profitable form of international cricket pound for pound or, uh, as, as it were, but, uh, but everyone is still desperately trying to fill the COVID-shaped hole in their funds. So everybody yeah. is desperate to, fill, to get that money back.
2: Well, this was this was the um, future tours program that we expected to see less white ball cricket in, right? Like I was coming in, I was like, oh, okay, well, what they'll all do is they'll be clever now. Maybe the maybe we'll see the Lincoln Premier League have two competitions, right, or whatever it That's may right. be. That's right.
1: There was a proposal. I think got to a fairly serious stage of every series, or almost every series, would be 3-3-3. Three, three, and three.
2: Yeah. And, you know, and we haven't seen that. And what we've seen is that I think there are as many games in this FTP as there was in the previous FTP, despite the fact that we've added, well, how many major tournaments? I mean, the 100 has been added since the last FTP. The Major League has been added. Um, the the South UAE. African League and the UAE. The UAE so there's four I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm missing one right um and yet we have the same amount of games being played less days I, th- I think I'm right in saying less days but the same amount of, of cricket roughly being played that tells you that they're desperate as you said to get back to parity but there is no parity like you know a bit like my finances are probably your finances during covid like that's just what happened to all of us right we we just have to go on and they haven't thought about it that way and they're also not really thinking about the long term again because if they think about the long term and you remember when uh, england and new zealand pulled out of pakistan i was mm-hmm. like if i was if i was working for the pcb right now i would be working on a plan to see if we can play the psl for 3 months of the year Right? If no one wants to come, that's fine. If they want to come in the other nine months of the year, okay, and we'll obviously tour them as well and you know we'll be involved in that. But can we play the PSL for three months of the year and actually make almost as much money as we would by wait, hoping that Australia, England and New Zealand and teams like that actually turn up?
1: The argument that's always been put forward against that and it's the argument that uh, was put forward with probably more validity with the repeated attempts to form a European Super League in, in football, in soccer, was that people would get burnout from that amount, that people would get sick of it.
2: I don't know. We're about to go into a summer where England are playing two consecutive months of test cricket. There's seven men's tests and and one women's um, test match coming up. Uh, How long does the ODI World Cup go for, right? Six, six,
1: seven weeks. And then I think the day after the last day of the men's ashes, the 100 starts.
2: I just don't think the burn... it's not that I don't believe in that as a concept, right? But as someone who watches American sports, <laughs> right? Uh, w- what am I What am I in? I'm hundred games into the Denver Nuggets season and they've still got another seven games to go, right? If I'm a baseball fan, I might be 130 or 140 or 180 games into their season. Why those things work and the way that football is also set up uh, works is because you have regular content every day of the week. Occasionally you have a big game, but you have a lot of games that, you know, you have a lot of Rajasthan versus Punjab where it doesn't matter as much. No one's saying that that isn't the case, right? You know, I don't think there's huge ratings in the Big Bash when, you know, Hobart are playing, you know, the Sydney Thunder, right? With, with, I, with I, a
1: bunch of uh, guys who were playing second grade the weekend before.
2: Yeah, I so, but it still works. It still works as a financial model. You might not make as much money per game as you do now, but I don't think what you'll have is... Uh, I don't... I don't think you'll ever have a position where it makes so little per game, it's worth having huge six-month-long international periods like what England is doing at the moment. Because the truth is that let's say the 100 actually works and ends up being a four-month-long tournament. If you can have a game on the TV every single night in prime time, and some of those are on free-to-air TV, and free-to-air actually starts to bid for them in a way that they do with football and everything else, It's just worth more than international cricket. That doesn't mean that international cricket isn't better and isn't worth more per game. But we've already seen England specifically try and play their players into the ground to get more money, right? You can only play so many games. And I think that uh, when it comes down to it, that's the thing about these franchise leagues that allow you to just do so much more. So with Pakistan fans, if, okay... They like the first two weeks of the PSL, and they love the finals at the end. And there's a couple of great clashes in the middle that get them excited. As long as the core audience is watching from beginning to end, and it never drip, dip, you know dips behind, beyond a, a a terrible number, it's not going to be an issue. They're just going to make more and money. You can, sort of and stuff. you can and you can drive the
1: and you can drive the hype train and the content. And I, that's a yeah. horrible thing to say, but that sounds more yeah. cynical than I meant it to. But if you can drive that excitement and all the ancillary content around it. Uh, in the same way that, frankly, I think there are a significant portion of the global football audience who are more interested in transfers than football. There are, there's a significant yeah. portion of the NFL market who are... I I watched for work purposes the NFL draft, and that was a more exciting TV product than like 70% of the actual sport that I've watched. I, and I I've watched a lot of Dame- TV sport.
2: I think transfer day in football and um, deadline day in basketball are probably two of the biggest days in that sport, right? Like it's so huge about what's going to happen and you know, it's going to be crazy and there's going to be rumors and reports and you won't believe this trade and you'll be shocked. Like we don't have any of that ancillary product in cricket. And one of the reasons we don't is because it's not, it's not a league structure. No one owns those sorts of things in, in, in cricket at the moment. We, there's so many things that we could be that could be done the only thing that gets close
1: is the IPL auction
2: yeah it, and even the IPL auction what you're really talking about there is if and you follow the Indian newspapers they start to get interested in it about a week before right deadline day in, in the NBA and transfer day it's weeks of content and uh, uh, NFL draft months almost, NFL draft like 11 and a half months of content coming into the next one right Uh they're just better at making that sort of stuff. And I do think that cricket fans are getting to that level. But a lot of this comes from the fact that we're used to our summer and our little bit. And then we talk about the games and we talk about the sport slightly differently. You can build up a completely different method and a completely different way of talking about cricket. And I do believe that the boards should be actively pushing this. And at the moment, for instance, there is no reason why you can't have um, open uh, open press conferences the day before a game, you should have access to any players from either side, um, if you're an accredited uh, media outlet. The players should be pushed onto all the different podcasts around the world, all the YouTube channels, wh- whatever that may be, by the boards. Instead, none of that happens. And it's a really, really defensive press conference you get at the end of the day. And you only get like one player come up and you may that may not be the most captivating story that day. It's just the guy who's least tired or least angry, right? the sport has to be better at all of those things. And the ICC have tried little things like the mix zone and everything else. It just has to continue to push. And I, I would say that the cricket media hasn't developed in the same way that cricket hasn't developed at times.
1: Uh, at the same time that people's expectations of their sports media have gone through the roof because uh, this, you, you as you were eloquently putting forth the counter argument against the burnout or the fatigue or the the, dimin- the diminution of interest thing not everyone's going to be watching everything all the time even people who work in cricket professionally can't do that oh. it's not physically possible and god knows i've tried uh the yeah. but someone will be watching something because everybody is obsessed with sport and everybody is obsessed with gossip and that and through things like the IPL auction through transfer deadline day through the drafts through the explosion of things like of the things like the Premier League because you know the IPL fans in particular they they're all watching every Premier League game they're getting up at 4 30 in the morning to watch mm-hmm. uh, to watch Erling Haaland score another five goals uh, the, that and It struck me repeatedly during this conversation and previously, the ICC as a concept as a single entity doesn't mean anything. Really, that that is a it's almost a meaningless concept in terms of who who are we actually talking about? And unfortunately, unfortunately, maybe let's take the value judgment out of it. what we're actually talking about is whoever happens to have the most political power at the time. Which now, because of the lack of vision and the uh the way that it's all the the protectionism has been left to mean whoever happens to have the most money at the time
2: yeah yeah i, I uzman was when we had we were at the big three press conference and there's only a handful of us there i think um and he asked i think it was alan isaacs who was the president of the icc i think at that stage i had a different title for some reason and he said outside of the fact that India, Australia, and England come from the biggest markets and have the biggest, have the, have the most money available to them, what about their cricket boards suggest that they're the best at running the game? And Alec Isaacs couldn't answer it because it had never really... The question, not the even question had never occurred to, to him. It just, didn't, it just didn't matter to them. And, you know, there are some things that some of the boards have done really really well and, and and i think some of the some of the um advertising around the 100 for instance is really really interesting uh the way that the big bash got crowds in in australia uh to domestic games uh in a way that hadn't happened in australia for you know generations outside of the odd the early states big bash when when t20 was a fad um uh, was really really interesting. BCCI have done some good things um, at times as well with uh, you know backroom stuff of recent times. And cricket Australia also do that uh, the, the very good stuff um, when it comes to their YouTube channel. They were the first country to really realise you could actually monetize old clips of cricket, right? Oh, yeah,
1: the West Indies YouTube channel is fantastic. They put out like forty-five yeah. minute extended highlights after every game. The BCCI, it's a slightly weird website to navigate, but actually you can watch domestic cricket from india really easily same with the shield
2: yeah and also the, BC, the bcci has and i think cricket australia has this as well i don't think the west Indies has got it yet but they'll have it where you can just click on the wickets so if you yeah. go to the school wickets card, and just, highlights you can, you yeah, just, yeah yeah yeah. Just, just things like that icc's got a lot of good stuff like that as well we there are things happening but you just talk about that 45 minute highlight thing i would i if i go on to the nba app now and i look at the heat boston game from the other night there's so many different options that I can watch. I can watch every offensive possession of the Miami Heat and every uh, defensive possession of the Miami Heat. Or I can watch everything in the game where it isn't a timeout or waiting for a free throw or someone slowly driving the ball up the court to reset the, the offense. We could actually have every single ball of, of a day's play bowled in, a, I think it's about 25 or 26 minutes. Right, and you could also be able to factor that through by batter or by bowler or whatever you wanted to do. All this stuff is available, and we're we're sitting there, and, and we're both saying, "Isn't it great that Cricket Australia and, and and Cricket West Indies have good YouTube channels?" Right, that is something that should have been done ten or fifteen years ago. Right, and there really does need to be a huge push in many different ways to make cricket a little bit more modern, because as you said, we've got a whole audience who are you know watching the NFL, they're watching the NBA, they're watching Premier League football, they're watching Spanish football, whatever it is, and everyone else is just a little bit more mature and ahead of the game. Cricket has to actually think about the entire way that it is marketed at the moment. And I think that the 100 was a really interesting one because it was the first time that I think someone had said, what are we doing right and what are we doing wrong? And I think the 100 made a lot of mistakes because they were so desperate to be... um, uh, edgy it, uh, pioneers yeah edgy and pioneers you know and they did stupid things too like they went to mum's there and they said to a bunch of people who don't like um cricket would you like less cricket then well of course like you know i, I don't particularly like you know um uh, if certain kinds of cinema if you could give me Half an hour less of that kind of cinema, I'm more likely to watch the movie. I'm probably still not gonna watch the movie because I wasn't that interested to begin with. But yeah, of course. They made mistakes like that. They obviously had no idea what they were doing on, on the field. They made lots of mistakes on the field. But but look at the DRS. It was probably the best uh, step forward in DRS we've ever seen, just
1: because they had to make it quicker,
2: right? And it was just a better system than we had seen before. There are things that can come and, out, and, of they, made it, and they,
1: made a, they made it. And they made it. They made it like a, ooh, like you see in tennis.
2: Yeah, little little things like that. I, I've said before. If you redesign cricket from the scratch, uh, uh, no, none of neither of us on this podcast are like. Wouldn't it be great if Saudi Arabia's money came into cricket? And we end up with live cricket, right? When we're not those sorts of people, that's not our thing. But the other side of it is, it would be very very fascinating to see if you could redesign cricket from in any way that you want with. I don't know, the Saudi mummy, or if Elon Musk has any money left, or if there's some random Indian or Bangladeshi billionaire who comes through and just wants to take over the game. So many things could be fixed, right? And so many things could be changed and improved about the way it is broadcast, uh, the way it is pushed, uh, you know, uh, the way people are paid. All these different things could actually help fix the game. And so there are opportunities out there that again, the free market had to bring on board because before, I mean, we've made fun of the modern cricket administrators compared to the old ones. The modern ones were actually kind of with it on the ball. Uh, you know, in the old days, you got a blazer and you sat with that blazer in the corporate box, or well, not even the corporate box, in the in the officials box, um, and that's all you did, right? And that's why Kerry Packer could do what he he did, and and that's why cricket did change in in that so easily at that point. That's not quite where we are anymore, and there are a lot of really dynamic, interesting people. Um, right across cricket administration. But it still goes up to that chair level that we started with. And that's the level where it usually headbutts.
1: The... You can look at it in, you you started talking about global power politics and you can very much look at it in in those terms. It used to be England and Australia with a little bit of South Africa. Uh, maybe who ran everything it was literally a colonial project the imperial cricket conference is is the name that that body has been known as longest that and so in much in the same way as as the european colonial empires did they ran everything for the for their own benefit and everybody else was either was a, a, by a sort of self um self-assumed divine mandate what you've had is that when satellite TV money starts unlocking the rest of the world, uh, particularly India when because it coincides with India's economic uh, liberalization, you had a period where what you could have had was an aggressive globalization and democratization, yes, driven by making people richer, but in the same way that football has managed to make people richer while also growing the game to the point that there are thriving leagues all over the world. And while you know, Morocco are probably never going to win the World Cup, it's not a massive surprise when they do quite well. And at least they can get into it on more or less the same uh, principle as, as, any, as anyone else. There is a clear competition structure, as skewed as it all is, uh, and as uh, unequal as the resources are as exploitative as the as the industry is what you've instead had is that india has just taken over that structure and sat atop it and re-entrenched it in the same way that some of the worst post-colonial independence governments did
0: well
2: you talked about the imperial cricket conference it's worth mentioning what happened so australia and england are basically playing on their own with south africa occasionally getting thrown to bone at that point South Africa come up with the idea of what if we just formed a thing and we played amongst ourselves and we called it this and, and it was probably set up so that America wasn't involved would be my guess. Um, I'm not sure what Island status was at the time, whether they were on the board, but I think there was a little bit of anti-American sentiment uh, perhaps in, in the original idea. It was set up as a private members club, right? By three organizations and Cricket has never broken out of that. Think about the way we talk about Test cricket. Oh, that yeah, they're good, that team, but they don't deserve Test cricket status yet. What well, why? They're a national team and there's eleven of them and they're gonna wear matching shirts and it's matching. It's never hats made
1: any sense to me why Brazil and Argentina couldn't yeah. get some play a two innings game over four days and call it a test match. It's never made any sense. Well no one's ever been able to I, satisfactorily I this, explain it to me.
2: Exactly. Argentina is a perfect example of all this. Argentina I, and I will I will put my cricket analyst hat on the line here and say that I think they were as good as New Zealand, but probably better than New Zealand when New Zealand got test status, right? And the fact that they weren't let into the private club because of all the different nonsense that was going around meant that they're not existing in cricket anymore. And they're not the only team we've lost. You could argue that we've lost Kenya, who are just hanging on at the moment. You could argue that we lost Denmark, You could argue that we lost Canada. All of these teams at various times were very strong. They had good players, right? Think about a global cricket world where you're throwing some of those teams in. And I haven't even, we forget USA, which could have been far more important. USA had one of the best bowlers in the world like 120 years ago. They were good enough to play test cricket. We know that. And so when you make every decision based on private members club and who you're going to let in and who you're not going to let in, that includes women, who remember, it's only in the last, what, 25, 20, 30 years that women has run, been run by the ICC. Women, women's cricket was run on its own, right? Men's cricket had no interest in women's cricket, right? Now it's making a ton of women's cricket, right? And we'll continue to make a ton of women's cricket going forward.
1: But in a very, uh, uh, but in a very uh, prescribed way that uh, has actually meant that women are playing less test cricket.
2: Yeah, yeah, and, and exactly. It's not run for the betterment of women's cricket. What they've really done is found a way to make women's cricket make money for them. And so they're going to go with that. They're not going to go with actually trying to improve women's cricket, just make more money from it. And it will help them get cricket into the Olympics when they eventually want to do that, right? So it will help them. But we talk about the private members club. It's only the last 30 years that women have been invited in. The ICC doesn't run any disabled cricket. Not a single format of disabled cricket from the most famous one, which is blind you know, all the way do, uh, through to the, uh, the mental disability uh, version of disabled cricket. Not a single version of that is run by the ICC to the point that when the 2019 World Cup was on in England, the ICC wouldn't allow the ECB, I don't know if it was run, but co-hosted event to be called a disability World Cup, right? It's private member decisions that are made over and over and over again. And essentially what happens is you have little flare-ups with that. But most private clubs usually have a bit where they struggle to find new members, right? And now you have one member who's so much more powerful than everyone else. And they, as I said, it's not like they're this bad bogeyman character that they're made out to be. That's just fundamentally not true about the BCCI. But because it's all these different political agendas and business agendas and administrative agendas, right? It's been torn in all these different things. You know, one minute it's like, oh, we're going to go global. No, no now we're going to do what Ganguly wants. No, now Jay Shaw is going to be involved. whoever's the most powerful person at that time pulls the ICC in whatever direction it's going to be, which is worse. Oh, oh, in, oh, Indian, planning. the
1: Indian, the Indian government, which has very strong links to cricket uh, and has a, and has seen cricket as a real uh, global export, uh, has suddenly become very right wing and uh, and Hindu nationalist. Sorry, Pakistan.
2: Yeah. I mean, a perfect example, right? It, you start the IPL with Pakistani players, you know, Sahel Tanvir having an absolutely incredible tournament. They were popular. We, Shahid Afridi is in like Bollywood movies,
1: right?
2: And like popular Bollywood movies. There's, I can't remember the name of the movie, yeah. but I saw it on a playbook. Oh, Sh- absolutely- Sh-
1: Sh- Bakhtar, Sh- Bakhtar and Shahid Afridi for different reasons. Absolute IPL gold.
2: Right. And so... You know, you then have these, these other parts of it. And the minute you make decisions based on who should be allowed in and who shouldn't be allowed in. And it's, look, this goes well beyond the ICC. We can, we can blame ICC, but, you know, it goes back to amateur versus professional. It goes back to, you know, uh, the way that uh, Lords was set up. You know, I always, I always find it really funny that the two most famous traditional cricket grounds, uh, you know, or, or certainly of the first hundred years, are Lords and the MCG. And the MCG is known as the People's Ground. And the Lords is a private ground run by the members, right? They're both private grounds run by members, of course. The MCC in Melbourne is just as run by members, but it calls itself the people's ground and wants to make it feel like it's part of the city. Lords wants to be a member's ground, right? And cricket has always pulled towards that. Once you keep limiting over and over again, you lose Denmark, you lose Argentina, you know, you lose women's cricket entirely, right? All these different things that they could have been making money on, that they could have grown the game on. And as you said, you you talked about before the whole thing of FIFA. Look, I I did a podcast with um, Pablo Torre on ESPN. And he was like, and I I put all a lot of this information out in front of him. And he said, well, what's the best case scenario for cricket? Is it like that they have FIFA? And I said, yeah. And he's like, well, that's not particularly good. And I said, but FIFA for the corruption and the nonsense and everything else, football keeps getting bigger. And cricket has not been getting as big as it should be. I'll say this: I looked up the other day. The second uh, cricket is the second most googled sport in the world. I I'm willing to say that that almost officially makes it the second biggest sport in the world, right? And you know, there's, other sports might make slightly more money or might be in better markets, whatever else. But I think that means cricket is the second biggest. Th- sport there's the a significant point to G- made G- there about
1: Google. the about the distribution of where that comes from. <laughs>
2: Yeah, but even if it is just Pakistan, Bangladesh, and mostly India, right? It doesn't at a certain point, that means that let's let's say there are let's say there are 1.6 billion people in the world that are aware of cricket. And of those 1.6 billion people, there are a hundred to one hundred and fifty billion people who are hardcore cricket fanatics that will watch, read, follow, talk to their friends about cricket at least once a week, right? That is absolutely massive, and we've got to that number by restricting the amount of teams who have played, by restricting the coverage, by restricting who can put up YouTube clips because we're so worried about all these sorts of things, right? By, by you know, going after Guerrilla Cricket or Test Match Sofa, right? All these different things that cricket has done to actually stop the growth of the game, and it's still got uh, probably 100 million hardcore fans, 1.5 billion people who know enough about the sport to have a casual conversation in in a cafe about it or whatever that may be. That tells you how great cricket is and how bad it has been run. And if it had been run well at any stage, I wonder where cricket would be because once it gets into the bloodstream, it is such an infectious sport right and I think that is the thing that has kept it alive because when they started playing three day tests in England in the late 1800s they're like well who's gonna who's gonna go to a bunch of games that go for three days long between Australia and England right well you know we're about to have five of them and they're longer
1: <laughs> maybe <laughs> uh, well, yeah well I I started this reaching out to you by proposing the title the gentleman always dies twice turns okay. out The gentleman's always been there. The gentleman's always been the one making the money, but the game just refuses to die. I've actually there's a book behind me on 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 this shelf that's a letter, a collection of cricket letters written to the Telegraph, uh, called "Not in My Day, Sir." I think the first reference I found in it to the death of Test cricket is from 1912. Yeah.
2: And I think it's before then. I I think I I think Wright Thompson might have found one. I think he went to a library and found one when he was writing one of his articles that goes back before that. And I think Abhishek Mukherjee and and some of the others have um have told me about really early ones. It's always been dying. The reason the movie was called Death of a Gentleman was in part to say that I don't. We didn't really. Maybe me and Sam made a slight mistake. It was a, it was a bit of a cat. You know, it was supposed to be a sarcastic. It's a good title title yeah it worked really well because we ended up getting a lot of features written in the telegraph uh or you know from that side of not in my day sir <laughs> type of type of coverage um we 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 knew that the gentleman title was nonsense right and that when they when it said if you ever read the word gentleman in cricket you need to re re-read it as elites, right that's what it means it doesn't I mean, but that's mean that's, that's what it elite.
1: meant to begin with it doesn't mean no, no. But, a nice person who's doing not, things right, it means the aristocrat.
2: Yeah, but that's not how people read it, right? You know, uh, when, when they talk about the gentleman's game, that people read that as, oh, it makes you be a good person. No, that's not what that means, right? It really means the gentleman owned the game, and they always have. And Death of a Gentleman to us was basically our way of saying that the model of which the gentleman ran the game in was dying. That bilateral uh idea of wearing a blazer and going around and um uh, the way that cricket was run didn't was already dead they didn't know it was dead and the reason we i was making the movie and and the reason sam got on board was we could see it was dying it didn't make any sense because by that stage by 2011 when we started it teams were already starting to cut back on their test cricket and it wasn't gonna there wasn't gonna be anything that was gonna save that because t20 cricket was only going to get bigger at that point Right? And it isn't T20 cricket that has killed Test cricket. It is a lack of administration and vision and governance that has actually killed Test cricket more than anything else. So the gentleman really was our way of saying that the people who run cricket, these sorts of pompous windbag um, who came from the right kind of family to, court, to use the old Giles Clark phrase, is they don't run cricket anymore. Cricket is going to be run by the market. And that will have absolutely brilliant consequences in some st- in, in some areas and Fairbreak women's tournament is a perfect example of that of these women from non-traditional cricket countries getting paid to play cricket professionally and it being broadcast around the world but it also might mean that if you grew up watching test matches in the 80s 90s and early 2000s that in 2030 2040 what you grew up watching no longer exists or if it does exist It exists as a second tier sport or a a third tier sport, depending on how, you know, those things play out. We could see it happening in 2011. And the reason was, it was very obvious to us from the first time we talked to Haroon Logat, who was supposed to be the ICC CEO. And the minute we got off record with him, we realized he had no power and and was absolutely as frustrated as everyone else. And you're just like, well, if he's got no power, where do we go from here? And what what we've done since is we have bumbled between a bunch of different people who at various times have been either politically popular or, as you said before, financially important. And they're involved for a little while, and then there's a scandal, or then they go off to do something else, or then their business needs take and they have to go back over there, and then we pop to the next person, right? And that as what has been running cricket, um, pretty much since 2016 is just kind of whoever's in vogue for whatever reason at that time, you can't run a multi-billion dollar business in that way.
1: And so the gentleman may not die, but the gentleman will put the stamp on their own irrelevance. And what grows up in their place is, well, who knows, but it seems to be the people with the deepest pockets. Um, We there's a lot of you know f- of football now football ownership and actually this will probably only get worse as in some cases i i am not someone who is by nature a doom merchant i'm bullishly deliberately aggressively optimistic about testing international cricket because i love it and i am trying to <laughs> i remember once pitching a podcast to someone on the basis of we're going to talk about cricket as though we like it and it was a genuinely radical concept um the but we've already seen in football that as the game makes more money it becomes so expensive to own that you either have to be a hedge fund or a state Mm -hmm. and that as a that as a that as a goal um at least at least until um late stage capitalism finally implodes in on itself is going to need a lot of these very driven very passionate people at all levels who exist in their droves to continue to is to keep cricket alive despite everything that cricket does to itself
2: yeah I, so while I'm trying to think if it was at the same time yeah while I was finishing up death of a gentleman I started writing a book called um test cricket the unauthorized biography and I I wanted to write a history about test cricket because there would never actually been a history about test cricket. There had been books about cricket, but they'd been about one country or another or, you know, or they just hadn't covered big parts of it. And I wanted to write a, a book about the history of test cricket. And I'm very narrative driven and I've got a big blackboard in my office and, you know, put down all the information that I had. And I realized really early on what I was saying is that cricket just overcomes and it overcame, you know, well, misogyny and racism and World War I and World War II and apartheid and all these different things that, you know, Kerry Packer and ICL, whatever it may be, cricket overcame all of those things. But that doesn't mean that it didn't keep changing. And I think there's this real thought. Do you, do you remember when that, The 100 came out and they were like, five ball overs, how could we ever do that? We've already had five ball overs. Cricket has adapted and changed and, and moved so many times because it is a brilliant sport. It is a very hard thing to kill off. And so when people say to me, oh, international cricket will be dead. I'm like, I don't think it will. It may be that, you know, it's it, it, it's not the most important th- part of cricket anymore. That's a very real possibility. But I just think that cricket has always found a way to do whatever it needed to be at any one time or another. and because the game is magical and because the game is uh, what's the best way of putting it. You can't clock cricket, right? It's just going to keep developing and moving and changing in the shape that it's always going to have. Uh, every um, question you I ask it, it comes that,
1: up with five more.
2: Yeah. It's just, it's un, unknowable. I suppose is the best way of putting it. You know, I, I, I wrote this article years ago for Cricket Info where basically like the reason that it's such an amazing sport is, is partly because we're playing on a surface that literally changes sometimes every 15 minutes, right? The actual surface itself is, is so unconquerable. And so cricket is so unconquerable because you can't script it. It's gonna do what it's gonna do, right? Like who would have thought that basketball would have come out of, of where we were? right who would have thought that the west indies who loved spinners and had uh, the world's leading uh, wicket taker was a spinner would end up being the fast bowling hotbed no one would have predicted what would have happened with Sh- with sri lanka zimbabwe namibia most most people in cricket now if you gave them a map would struggle to tell you where namibia is and would 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 not have any idea of how it is formed as a nation right but they know who namibia is now they've been there they've seen it it's been on their tv they know david visa right? They probably know Erasmus and someone else. And cricket has kept doing that sort of thing over and over again in a way that no other sport outside of football has managed to do. And football is incredible, but football unfurls over such a short period of time. And I think one of cricket's great strengths is the fact that the test match itself is just so long and could go on. But even a T20 innings, you know, you watch a T20 innings, like Shubman Gill in that semi-final it felt like you're watching him for a lifetime, right? In a way that a footballer would just be off ball. Schumann Gill was just there the whole time. There's so many things in cricket that just take that long to go. And because we have thrown so many things at it over the years and it has remained, I kind of think that that means that there is something very special about this game. And I'm not talking about the nonsense of, you know, the spirit of cricket and all that. I I don't believe in all that, any of that sort of stuff. But what I do believe is Because cricket is what it is, it finds a way to adapt and survive in any new environment. So maybe what I'm saying it is, is it's the greatest bacteria that was ever invented
1: by the English. Jared Kimber, thank you very much.
2: Sports Social Podcast Network.